there, and welcome to the Zero Half Hour, brought to you by Zero Hour Health and Zedic, a podcast where we talk with leaders from across the food service industry and beyond about the pressing issues of the day in 30 minutes or less. Our goal is to share ideas from diverse perspectives on a range of topics that matter to every business in the current and post-COVID eras. I'm Rosalind Stone, CEO of Zero Hour Health, and thanks for joining us. Today's guest is Joe Cato. Joe is a longtime leader in the food service business, and I've been lucky enough to work with Joe for more than 25 years. An attorney by training, Joe was an integral team member at the launch of Outback Steakhouse and Bloom and Brands, where he worked for more than 25 years as chief legal officer. Joe is also a former chairman of the National Restaurant Association, serves on numerous boards, and is a consistent champion for the food service industry. Good morning, and welcome, Joe Cato. You can introduce yourself better than I can. Can you give us a short bio, who you are, what you've done, what you're doing currently? Uh, Sure. Well, um, I'm an attorney by training, uh, undergraduate uh, degree in accounting. Um, I guess my first exposure to the restaurant industry was in uh, 1983. Uh, I had moved from Philadelphia, where I was practicing, to uh, Sarasota, Florida, and the first month I was there, uh, in walked uh, Chris Sullivan, Bob Basham, and Gene Nippers, who were uh, protégés of Norman Brinker. And Norman had left uh, SNA to buy control of Chili's in early of 83, which at the time was just a few restaurants around Dallas. And they were going to become the first uh, area developers for, uh, for Chili's. And so I started representing them on that transaction, uh, eventually sold that company back to Chili's, and Chris and Bob started out back did all of Outback's work until I came in-house in uh, 94, developed the uh, managing partner program, designed the managing partner program for Outback, and then spent uh, 25 years with uh, what eventually became Bloom and & Brands, and stepped down in July of uh, 2019. Um, plan was to do a lot of international travel Uh, I was able to get in one trip to Paris and one trip to New Zealand to see our daughter. And then, of course, um, COVID hit. Um, I was on the board of Habit Restaurants, Habit Burgers, and uh, chaired the special committee when we decided to explore strategic alternatives. And that company was sold to Yum, and it closed in March of 2020. Um, just when, uh, you know, COVID had, uh, had reared its head. Um, since then, I've joined the board of another public company, an insurance distribution company, BRP, Baldwin Risk Partners. Uh, it's traded on the NASDAQ under BRP, and that's been, um, that's been a lot of fun and exciting to see a, a different industry. And so I've been doing some consulting um, been doing some things just to help friends and help the industry, if you will, uh, when, when COVID started and, uh, and, the, and the PPP uh, program rolled out. Um, so that's kind of some of the things I've been doing to you know, keep busy. Um, but I'm hoping that uh, we'll be able to renew our international travel plans um, shortly. The, the good news is... Um, for my daughter in New Zealand, she's a professional ballet dancer. With the exception of their border being closed, they've been back to normal for over a year now, and she's been dancing uh, full theaters, and so they're they're kind of back to normal. New Zealand's a special case, but uh, it's been interesting to see 
how they've handled this uh, or able to handle it given their circumstances. Yeah, you know, interesting, interesting international travel news in the last in the last few days and last few weeks as we see this this Delta variant really really start to to rage. I am feeling rather old though when I hear that your daughter is a professional ballet dancer because I remember when she was a little girl in a tutu. <laughs> I guess I I guess I should have mentioned that I um, have spent many years on the board of the National Restaurant Association and served as chair uh, in 2016. Uh, which was uh, which was a good experience, wonderful experience, and uh, an opportunity to give a little back to the industry. Absolutely, um, and and certainly the NRA's role in the past year has been very different than in the past, or the the needs for the association have been very very different than in the past. Well, I'll tell you, Rosalind, I, they they've just done an incredible job. Um, Tom Benny and uh, Sean Kennedy and. Uh, Dan Rail, Matt Walker, everybody on, on the team and the advocacy team, they've just done a, uh, an incredible job, in my view, and, you know, kind of heroes to the industry. And uh, I, don't, I don't know where we would have been without the, uh, without the advocacy team um, at the NRA. Um, but I will say, in terms of uh, COVID and, and, and what I've seen, I, I I can't tell you how proud I am to be part of, uh, of, of this industry, the way um, the industry showed its resilience, um, its, uh, its agility, uh, its kind of never say die, its willingness to help uh, others. Um, so many people um, stepped up. Uh, I know you had Andy on, uh, Andy, Andy Forsheimer. Uh, he and Alice had a, had a, a, a group that um, had calls every week, sharing information, sharing best practices. Um, I kind of had a group with Bill Allen uh, that that did a lot of the same stuff uh, in terms of trying to get information out, to try to try to help people um, get through it because not everybody has the resources of a big company. Um, but I was uh, I was very um, it's very gratifying to see the industry uh, stand up the way it did. I totally agree. We have clients that reinvented themselves, you know, inside of a month. You know, it was clients that never did to, to go or delivery. You know, clients who, um, you know, never, um, you know, never had supply issues, you know, that had to completely change their thinking. You know, and, and um, from, from the IT infrastructure also, it was amazing the, the progress that got made in an incredibly short time, you know, that showed a resilience, a creativity, you know, a... a you know, willingness to do whatever needed to be done to to support their employees, their customers, their communities. I, I was I was I was amazed, uh, and there's just example after example of uh, of people who did exactly what you're what, what you're talking about. And uh, you know, I don't know that any of us would have thought it could be done. Uh, you know, if you if you had given us this set of circumstances, you know, in, in terms of you know. We'll, we'll, Will people be able to survive and do what needs to be done to, to keep their business intact? It was just amazing. You know, um, we, have, we have a long history, Zero Hour Health, formerly Corporate Wellness, we have a very long history with Outback and, and Bloom and Brands. In fact, you had asked me the question yesterday about how long was, you know, neither of us could remember, and it was, it's 25 years. Um, as I went through that, um, went through my, my emails and my archive files to find that date, I found that we sat on a um, 
pandemic planning committee that started in 2005. You know, and that was just such cutting edge, you know, you know, so far ahead of the curve. But we never talked about in that planning, we never thought about every restaurant shutting down. We talked about regional closures, you know, for flu or for other things, but never in, and, you know, we had, we had quite the brain trust around those tables, but never thought about that there would be a day that every restaurant in the country would shut down. And um, that's, you know, it's interesting. This was an interesting walk down memory lane to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, 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 I guess we didn't, um, I, I, I guess our imagination uh, wasn't up to the task, but uh, no, I don't know anybody who ever saw anything like this coming. Right. You had N95 respirators, you know, tucked away in your office. Right. From that, from that experience. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, but, but not enough for, not nearly enough. You know, I sent our employees each 200 or $250 and a supply list to stock up for two weeks at the very, very front end of this, you know, two weeks, you know, you probably had a two week supply of N95 respirators for, for the size of, of Outback's corporate team at that time, you know, so who would have ever thought the scope could, could go this, this far? No. And, uh, you know, what, I, I guess before we go any further, Rosalind, you know, I've, I've been one of your uh, biggest fans for at least 25 years. Um, but I have to tell you, I just have to tip my hat to you and, and Zero Hour, the way you have evolved and innovated from corporate wellness to Zero Hour and served the industry. You've been one of the great resources uh, for the industry. And I, and I just want to uh, uh, say that and uh, give you some kudos because they're certainly, um, they're certainly well-deserved. You've, you, you've certainly saved my butt many, many times. And I know you have for, for others as well. And we like to talk about um, keeping our customers and our employees safe in the industry, but um, you know we we, we certainly uh, wouldn't be able to do it anywhere near as effectively uh, without you and your company. Thank you, I appreciate that. And and um, what we do is very much based on the vision, and I've talked about this before. The vision that that you know was born in Outback. You know when when Outback started to write its first crisis manual and said, "Hey, you know, you have these resources. Can let's let's partner." And there was never the expectation that we would know all the answers, um, but that we would use our resources and you would use your resources, and together we'd figure it out situation by situation. You know, and that's what we've done over over twenty five years, and what other companies very much, you know, benefit from. You know, last night there was a a boil water order for Burlington, North Carolina. You know, and and you know. Blumen or Outback's Hurricane Andrew experience was part of what we used last night. Right. No, I mean, yeah, over the years, we've seen so many, so many things. I was, I was recalling um, yesterday our Long Island experience, um, yes. which I think was mid-90s. We were at the time, you know, I mean, Outback was, at one point in time, we opened 125 restaurants in a year. I mean, that's a lot of restaurants to be opening full service restaurants and we and we sent a training crew to open a store from in, in Long Island and we drew that training crew I think from six or seven different restaurants while they were at the opening they went out to dinner at a seafood restaurant they all unknowingly contracted hepatitis A and of course took it back home to their six or seven restaurants. And that was the experience that um, made us understand that anybody who, uh, who visits more than one restaurant needs to be, needs to be vaccinated for hepatitis A. And uh, it seems quaint today with, uh, with the COVID pandemic to be talking about hepatitis A, but, um, 
you know, you, sometimes, you know, you, you try to think of all the possible what ifs and what can go wrong and, you know, you do your best, but you can still get surprised. Yeah. Well, and I think there were lots of, there were lots of good lessons from that experience that apply to other hep A experiences, apply to neuro and apply to COVID, you know, which is making sure that nobody works sick. Hand washing worked. I mean, that was, you know, we had a couple of huge takeaways from that mass, and it was a massive event because we had multiple counties, multiple states, uh, you know, I'll multiple, never forget. Multiple TV stations. <laughs> I was just going to say, the News Channel 4 helicopters were overhead while several people, you know, walked in in front of me and they said, well, we came tonight because we thought the short would be waiter, short, the weight would be shorter. And that, like, is one of my classic lines in my entire career was sitting there hearing that as the helicopters were overhead. But, um, um, you know, there are a lot of takeaways from that that applied directly to what we knew about COVID. No, not a single patron and a sing or a single employee um, that didn't participate in that seafood dinner got sick. And that's because we didn't let anybody work sick because hand washing works. And those were really important messages for COVID. Um, Bloom and Brands had a system in place for doing symptom surveys checking that no one had any symptoms before they go to work um, that you've used for years and years and years. And those were the, um, that, that was the basic tool that became our daily wellness check um, that very quickly got automated and very quickly got to be doing several million a month electronically, really from those events. They're the same, the same process, just, you know, 27th generation. And, you know, look, uh, the, the focus on this, I think, is going to be with us for some time. I see what, New, what, you know, because my daughter's there, I see what New Zealand did. And look, New Zealand could do what they do because they're an island in the middle of the South Pacific, right? But they did a lockdown that was a real, honest to God, no fooling around lockdown. And I don't know if they did it for six weeks or eight weeks, but at the end of it, I mean, they're back to normal. Nobody's vaccinated. Nobody's wearing a mask. And they're, you know, they were able to eradicate it because they're isolated and they close the borders. Not suggesting we could do that here, but to say we're gonna have a lockdown, you know, we were in lockdown, but I could still get on a plane and fly to New York or Los Angeles or anywhere I wanted. Well, I don't know right. how they call that a lockdown. So it's kind of like, you know, we're, we're really, we're locking down, we're impacting the economy, but we're not really effectively doing a lockdown. So it's kind of like, right. you know, either we're going to do it or we're not going to do it. You know, I, I can tell you that what we did is nowhere near a true lockdown, at least by the New Zealand standard. I would agree. I think that if we had truly locked down for two to four weeks, just completely, we wouldn't be where we are today. And we wouldn't have, um, we wouldn't have had, you know, nearly the number of deaths, the number of illnesses, the number, you know, number of respirators. Look, I, I don't know if you could do it in this country, but in New Zealand, they closed the border and the border is still closed. I understand that. But they shut down all domestic air travel. You couldn't get on a plane anywhere within New Zealand. You were ordered not to leave your neighborhood. Okay, There was no get in your car and drive to another city. None of that. You register with the government, your bubble, your friends and family that you're going to be in contact with so that they can contact trace if necessary. Everything closed except essential businesses, right? Supermarkets, pharmacies, uh, medical providers, and, and anybody who was manufacturing or making anything that was essential. 
but restaurants were closed. It wasn't takeout and delivery. It was, you're closed. Everybody was closed, right? Right. But, you know, I'm not saying we, we could have done that here in this country, but, you know, that's the kind of lockdown that's effective. Right. I agree. That's not suggesting that, you know, we would ever be able to do it, right? Um, but, you know. I think we could have. I think we could have. I mean, granted, I mean, you're the lawyer, but, um, you know, our Constitution probably... Well, yes. I, I, frankly, the reality is it's not so much my, the, the concern isn't the is isn't the isn't the legality of it. It's the willingness of the population, right? I right. mean, in in, mm-hmm. in New Zealand, I mean, my daughter tells me I wasn't there, but my daughter tells me it was kind of like, yeah, okay, you know, kind of a kind of a wartime effort mentality, right? We're all in this together. We're all going to do the right thing, and you know, if if you're not doing the right thing, your your friends and neighbors are going to call you on it, right? You right, know, I, you know we're Americans. We don't we don't like to be told what to do. So I mean, it's you know, I don't know that it would work here for 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 that reason. But I but maybe next time it will. Maybe that's right. what, so I'm hoping, right? Maybe maybe next time, if anything, we get some learning out of this. You know, if there is a next time, hopefully there won't be. But if there is, maybe next time people will be more willing to say, okay, let's have a let's have a serious you know, six, eight week lockdown and be done with it. Right. Yeah. Well, I do fear that it became so political that we're not going to apply the lessons learned um, in, in the best way possible. Everything is political today. It's amazing. It's astounding to me. I mean, you, right? <laughs> and, I, and I think people forget... Um, you know, a lot of criticism, well, the, you know, follow the science, science changes. Well, sure, the science changes. As the, as the data and the evidence change, hopefully the, the you know, the, the, the science changes accordingly. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. It's a, we're, we're in a tough spot um, politically these days. We are. So what do you think the biggest lessons learned were across the industry? Well, I think it's in terms of lessons learned... Um, well, I guess the first lesson is uh, you never know what might happen, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I'm worried, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't know, I mean, like, what's next, right? Uh, you know, I'm worried about, I, ho- I haven't looked at the infrastructure bill, but I hope there's a lot of money in there to harden our utility systems from cyber attack and uh, everything from that to uh, electromagnetic pulses. Um, I, I, I think we learned how resilient um, we are um, how much courage there is in the industry, how much there is to be proud of in the industry. Um, yet I, I, I think we certainly also got a sobering look at how vulnerable we are and how vulnerable some of our, our employees and our, 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 our people are. And so that's, um, uh, that's something to be learned. Um, I think we also learned how much, um, you know, it's NRA has had surveys on this for years. Customers, people, people love restaurants. They really do. They really love to go to restaurants. And I think right now, as we open up, we're, we're in kind of a honeymoon, right? There's a, there's a massive amount of stimulus in the economy. Um, people can't wait to get out, right? You've got cabin fever. Um, people are, customers are very forgiving right now. They understand people are short-staffed. They understand we're coming off this pandemic, etc., um, don't know how long any of that is going to last. Mm-hmm. Um, 
don't know how inflation is going to ripple through our sector, our industry, um, and what that's going to mean in terms of the need or the and or the ability to to to, to take price. Um, so you know, I, I, I think that's kind of where we are in, t in terms of what we learned. I mean, yeah, boy. Um, the need to be, uh, we, we learned a lot of things in terms of how to be flexible and agile and resilient and, and, and all of that's good. Looking forward, there's a lot of issues out there. There sure are. Um, you brought up the staffing crisis. Um, will it ultimately change the industry? Is there light at the end of the tunnel? I, I, I think the first thing we have to talk about when the, 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 the staffing crisis, if you really think about it, um, Certainly, the, the situation we're in now, as a result of the pandemic, yes, but we had somewhat of a stand, staffing crisis before the pandemic, right? Agreed. Let's take a look. If you take a look at, um, you know, and, and I used my, to the extent I had a bully pulpit as chair of the NRA in 2016, I talked about some of this stuff. As recently as 2000, the year 2000, over 50% of 16 to 19 year olds had some kind of job, right? Part-time job, but over 50% of 16 to 19 year olds had some kind of job. At the end of 2019, before the pandemic, that was down to 35%. And in terms of absolute actual numbers, that's percentages, uh, you know, you went from 7.2 million 16 to 19 year olds working in 2000 to 5.2 million. In 20, at the end of 2019. So you've lost 2 million there, 16 to 19 year olds. Projections are that you're gonna lose another 1.2 million of 16 to 24 year olds by 2028. So an age group that the industry has historically relied on is both shrinking in terms of numbers and in terms of willingness to have some kind of, some kind of job. I don't know what they're doing, but they're not working. Um, so, so you they're have also that. not getting you, vaccinated, you, right? You you couple that, you couple that with overall population growth in the United States slowing, and it's going to be at its low over the next ten years. It's going to be at its lowest levels in decades, right? Our birth rate is now. A little bit basically right at replacement level mm -hmm. in Europe it's been below replacement level for some time but the United States was a little bit above replacement level so our birth rate now is at replacement level so we're gonna have no population growth unless it unless it comes from immigration All right so we've got a we've got a no growth in the population we've got no growth or declining in the labor force um, so Forget the argument of people aren't working because we're giving them too much unemployment benefits and we're sending them, you know, child, refundable child care advance money. Forget all of that. Um, you know, we still have this issue of the, 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 the workforce is not growing. And so I think what we're going to be, what we're going to see is you're going to see particularly, cer certainly in quick service, right? I mean, automation and eliminating the need for people in, in, in quick service has been a theme for, for some time now. And that's going to move to other segments of the industry. 
and you know we're just going to have to find ways um, to to operate uh, with a with a in, in an environment where people cost more, and it's harder to um, it, it, you know it, it's harder to find them and harder to get into, get them interested in the industry. I, I spoke for you know my main theme as chair of the NRA was that our industry provides a very rapid path to a head of household middle class income for people who do not have the advantages of advanced education or advanced skills training. So no college degree, no student debt. You can go into a restaurant and before the age of 25, you can be an assistant manager of a full service restaurant, make 40 to $50,000 a year. Those are pre-COVID numbers. Who knows what they're I making said the now. The numbers are much higher. Right? And you can do that before the age of 25, no college degree, no student debt. You can be a general manager before the age of 30, no college degree, no student debt. And that's a six-figure number now, right? So, I mean, th this is a rapid pathway to a middle-class income for people who, who don't have college degrees or adv advanced skills training. And I don't think our industry has ever focused on that the way we, um, the way we should. Um, so, you know, look, uh, some of the debates we used to have about minimum wage, in fact, seem quaint now, right? I mean, it's, uh, you know, we said, let the market take care of it. Well, the market is taking care of it. Admittedly, there's, there is... Um, government intervention now that hopefully is temporary um, that is skewing the market to some degree but we have a whole lot of other people competing with us now for the same people right whether it's Amazon or Walmart or whatever um, and th you know they're, they're doing that because as I said the, the labor pool is shrinking and they are in a position where they can afford to pay more because their profit structure is different than our industry. I talked for years about our, our industry being a low profit per employee industry. So they can offer maybe more money, maybe better benefits, et cetera, because they have bigger margins. Um, you know, I, I, I think the way we deal with that is to, you know, give a better work experience. You know, we have a few things going for us. It, it, it shouldn't be a, it should be a very low bar to make working in your restaurant more, more enjoyable and more fun than working in an Amazon warehouse. And I think if we focus on this rapid path to, uh, to a middle class income, I think those are some of the tools we have to, uh, to kind of fight back. You know, Andy talked about that that point that, you know, the, the, the people who had experience that worked in restaurants who left the industry, that 25 percent who left the left the industry during covid, you know, that that, you know, it was no longer fun, you know, and it felt and it felt risky, you know, and they weren't making that much money, um, you know, putting the fun back in is is challenging right now with the staffing levels. So that, you know, that's our, our sort of short term challenge. Yep, and you know, and that's um, like I said. Hopefully, hopefully the customers are um, uh, being very nice and being very forgiving and tipping more than they normally would, which is what they should. We can be hope. Doing. <laughs> um, changing gears just slightly. Um, one of the biggest challenges that we heard about throughout this, and we even still hear about today, you know, are the ever-changing state and local regulations surrounding all of this, and, and certainly the NRA played a big role in trying to keep up with those. You know, but 
certainly very difficult to do down to the hyper-local level. We had something this past week where Washington State was requiring a 14-day exclusion for COVID exposures rather than the 10-day that's that's the standard, you know, and one county was waiving it. You know, how, how are restaurateurs supposed to keep up with that? What are the other, you know, do, have there been things in the past that have been as challenging as that? Not that I can remember. Um, no, to be perfectly honest with you, no. Um, and I think the only thing, um, I'll, just put a, I'll just put a plug in here. Um, your, your state and local restaurant associations, so, you know, and they're, and they're now integrated with the National Restaurant Association. So the resources you have through the, the NRA has the resources at the federal level and then your state um, association, everyone is all over the state regulations. And you know your local association; they can they can help you at the um, at the local level. Um, that's that's number one. Number two, you know, companies like like you, you've done an absolutely fabulous job for um, for your clients. Um, not everybody is a zero you know zero hour health client or or can be, but um, and then they they're going to have to rely. I think uh, the best place to go is, is your state and local associations. I mean, because right. it's um, you know how. How anybody, uh, how anybody expects any business to keep up with all of the applicable regulations these days is just, um, it's, it's an ongoing challenge. Agreed. Joe, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Rosalind, thank you. It was wonderful to speak with you and uh, thank you for the opportunity. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. show for today. Thanks again for taking the time to join us. Stay tuned for our next episode in your inboxes and on your podcast app of choice soon. As always, if you have any topics or questions you'd like us to cover or if a guest we should chat with, don't hesitate to reach out to us at support at zerohourhealth.com. To learn more about us and subscribe to our twice-weekly executive summary, check out zerohourhealth.com. Thanks again.